It's great to see uh, a number of you I have not seen in a long time who are here with your dads for Father's Day. I hope you all have a great day together. And uh, thanks for coming. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1. If, you've got, if you don't have a Bible and want to use one from the pew, it's page 1014. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. This is the third sermon this summer on a, on a, a brief series on the, the letter of 1 Peter. We'll be looking at verses 13 and following today. It's always helpful to remember that Peter is writing to believers who were exiled in a variety of places. They had had to flee Jerusalem, and they are in the midst of trials of a variety of sorts, but pretty much everyone to whom he is writing is suffering. The climate was one of persecution at that time in the Roman Empire. And we come to verse 13 and following here God's word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So ends the reading of God's word. Last week as we looked at this, if you were here, I showed you how Peter wrote these words to Christians who were suffering. If you and I go through, and some of you are and have and will, very difficult times because of your faith, that will show whether it is genuine or not. And religious pretense... Religious pretense does not last very long in the face of trials and suffering. I read a book several months ago, a very good book by Mike Wilkerson, entitled Redemption. And it covers a lot of things, but toward the beginning he was observing how in America, many Americans, and even those church-going Americans, we, we have a concept of God, but it's not that God is the center part of our life, it's not that we treasure him, in fact, uh, in that book, it states that 83% uh, of American churchgoers said that they believe that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is a verse from the Bible. Now, before you nod your head, it's not in the Bible. That's Thomas. I know it was Benjamin Franklin who said that. It's not in Scripture. And so the American folk religion kind of says that God is there. He's there primarily to help us when we get into trouble. He's given us some guidelines to how we should behave along the way. Some have called that, and I love this term, moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism, and it's described with these five beliefs. Okay? There are five, and here's the first. The first belief is that there is a God who exists and who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. So far, so good. That's the first belief. Second, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. 
Third, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. I would, before I even read the book, I would have thought that, that, is, that is very prominent, that, that kind of thinking uh, in churches, especially here in the South. Jesus is never mentioned. Nothing said about sacrificial death, substitutionary death. This idea stands in stark contrast to the verses we just read in Peter. So let's look at those together. There's an admonition here to pursue holiness. What could be more frightening than to be told that we're supposed to be holy? I mean, the very idea conjures up weirdness. Holiness. Oh, no. I had a friend in college named Rich McGee. I love that name. Rich McGee. I've never seen him since then. But I vividly remember how he described to me his perception of what Christianity was before he became a Christian. I think I almost memorized it verbatim. He said, I remember, he said, before I was a Christian, I was so fearful that if I became a Christian, God would dress me up in a choir robe, send me to a Hell's Angels orgy, and force me to hand out evangelistic booklets to everybody that was there. Then I would have to marry a woman who wore her hair in a bun. And then he'd send me to be a missionary, uh, missionary to Bongo Bongo, and I would die on a banana boat on the way over. <laughs> Some of y'all are thinking, well, sounds good to me. That's not the Bible's view, per se, of holiness. Uh, his view was, if I'm to be holy, then that will be the end of an enjoyable life. That's not what's described here. The biblical word holiness, or to be holy, just means to be separate, to be set apart. We use it most commonly in our culture, or have in the past traditionally, with marriage. Holy matrimony. Uh, Here's what that means. And I heard a man explain to me that when he was in the military, he said, I was 8,000 miles away from my wife with no accountability. And he said, what kept me faithful to her was the memory of the vows that I had taken of holy matrimony. What does it mean in that context? What's holy mean? It meant he was set apart exclusively for her. God wants you and me, we've got our trust in Christ, if we're his followers, to be set apart, to be holy. And it's for all Christians. It's not just missionaries, preachers, Sunday school teachers. It makes no difference who you are, your age, your station in life. If you trust Christ as your Savior, God calls you to be holy. So what Peter's telling us here is how to do it. And the first thing he says, it begins in your thinking. It begins in your mind in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. The King James says, girding up your loins. Gird up the loins of your mind. To gird up meant to bring the robes in. People in that day, all people, wore robes, essentially, even soldiers. And to prepare for battle or prepare for quick movement, they girded up their robes. They pulled them up and they had a belt. They tied them up above the knee. So that was preparation. Peter's using this analogy. Make sure you focus your mind, prepare it, make sure you focus it on the right place. We're to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So in a sense, it begins in our thinking. 
Now, I try to apply this with, with two types of preparation. One is defensive, and the second one is offensive. Defensive is just defending what goes into it, uh, defending what I think about, defending my mind from what I'm going to dwell on. Uh, all of us today are just bombarded uh, with images and thoughts uh, from all sorts of directions, whether it's television, computers, or or any form of mass communication, and we're bombarded with mental images that no previous generation had had to deal with on such a regular basis. Movies, television, internet, magazines, whether it's violence or demeaning images of others, or whether it's pornographic, or, I mean, could, the list could go on and on. There's always been forms of pornography. We know that from the murals at Pompeii, or, or the, the sculpture that we hold in high regard, often it was their pornography of the day, and it served the same purpose. Here in our day, 47% of families say that pornography is a problem in their home. One in two, half of the families. 28% of those admitting to sexual addiction are women. So uh, it, it's not just men. The enemy knows that if he can get your attention, he can get you. And his goal in the believer's life is to neutralize you. And the easiest way to do that is in your thinking and to bring shame and guilt and preoccupation and just ungodly thoughts that will just veer you off in a different direction. So it starts here. I try to ask myself, and I have for years, what before I read something, before I watch something, before I... Uh, engage in something and let my mind engage in it? Is this going to help prepare my mind for action? Secondly, is there's an offensive preparation. Is my mind dwelling on the right thing? Am I preparing my thinking with right material, scripture, scriptural truth, books that are read? Listen, if the only time that your mind dwells on scriptural truth is for part of the service or Sunday school classes one day a week, that is not sufficient. That is not sufficient to prepare you for what Peter is describing here. You will not be prepared for action. You need more. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Philippi from a Roman prison, as he concluded that letter, he said, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about those things. The New American Standard says dwell on those things. Marinate your mind on those things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, whatever is commendable. If anything, there's excellence. Once a year, I get with two of my childhood friends that are, one's a pastor in Atlanta and one's a pastor in Savannah, and we met Thursday night. We meet at a state park and we spend about 12 hours together, 12 or 18 hours, and we just talk. And inevitably, we, when we're together, what are you reading? What are you reading? So, all right, so I'm 58, one friend's 59, one I think is about 60 by now, and they're always reading. I sat there with my phone and ordered off Amazon, and in a matter of moments, the books they're telling me they're reading. We talked about Dallas Willard's great book, Renovation of the Heart. We talked about another book written by a Korean fellow called The Next Evangelicals and a variety of other things. So I'm moved by, I'm challenged by friends, not just in ministry, that are Christians, that it doesn't get any easier. you got to engage your mind, and that's the beginning even of spiritual warfare, is I've got to deal with my thinking. R.C. Sproul, 
said, we cannot love with passion that which we know nothing about. The book that contains the sacred revelation of Almighty God, His Word, is addressed in the first instance to our minds. Therefore, the more we understand the truth of God, the more we will be gripped by it in our hearts and changed by it. You can't love what you don't know. It will not grip you if you only have a cursory knowledge of God. Then he goes on, and I must as well. It's easy to, I could focus on one phrase here, but he says, be sober-minded. That's the word, be in control of yourself. That's one part of the fruit of the Spirit. He says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given. If you were here last week, we looked at how the word hope in the Bible is different than the way we use hope. When you and I say, well, I hope it doesn't rain next week, we're taking a vacation, or I hope I, get, I hope this happens, I hope I get a good report, I hope I pass that test. That's wishful thinking. That's the way we typically think of the word hope. But hope here is certainty. It's, it's going to happen, you can count on it. It's not wishful thinking, it's assurance, it's certainty. And here the certainty is with the return of Christ, that we are to think about that, we are to dwell on it, we are to mull over it. And we do so with confidence that it will happen. It is very healthy, believer, if you live every day thinking about the return of Christ. Our blessed hope, as it's called elsewhere in Scripture. I was a terrible Sunday school kid. I mean, for every reason. I, I, I wasn't a Christian. I, I, I didn't know anything about the Bible. My mother dragged me to church. And uh, the, it was ages such that there were about six of us in my class all the way up. And I was very, I didn't like it, and it was all my problem, but one, I didn't know anything, and inevitably the teacher asked us questions that we were supposed to know things, so I felt ignorant. Secondly, the most terrifying part was guess what we did at the end? Sentence prayers. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't, I, 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 uh, I didn't have a prayer, and so <laughs> literally didn't have a prayer. So at the end of the class, okay, we're going to end the class. We'll have sentence prayers. Let's start with you. You know, work your way down the six wooden chairs. So at a young age, I memorized a prayer. I had only heard one prayer um, outside of the church building, and that was one that was prayed when our extended family would gather for a meal. It was Thanksgiving or Christmas and the prayer that would be offered was, Lord, uh, make us thankful for these and all other blessings. That wasn't going to cut it in the Sunday school class. There wasn't any food in front of us. So I had to come up, I had to increase my range a little bit. And so I came up with this prayer and I prayed it. I got a lot of mileage out of this, about eight years in Sunday school. The prayer was, Lord, thank you for the Bible and bless the missionaries. That was it. I didn't know who I was praying to. I didn't know if anybody heard it, but I had it, and I was ready. But uh, the, teachers, the teachers were diligent, and I do remember this. I had this teacher, and she was a fossil. She was ancient. She's probably 35, but at the time, I mean, she just, she just at that time, I'm like, how was this woman even upright, you know? And, and I, I remember it was a Sunday morning, and about... Two in the morning, there had been a massive explosion right outside of our city at a munitions factory, city, town. And I remember that 
later this teacher in the class mentioned that. Not, that, not the morning it happened. It was like 2 a.m. on a Sunday morning, this explosion. But it was heard all over and felt all over the area. But I remember this teacher saying, she referred to that explosion and that she'd been asleep in her bed. And the moment she heard it, her first thought when she awakened to the sound was, Jesus has returned. Now, you're talking, I'm telling you, I didn't pay attention in Sunday school. I didn't, I can't remember anything except my memorized prayer. But that got my attention. And here, even to this young kid, I thought, this woman is living with the expectation that Jesus is coming back. And so in the middle of the night, she awakens in her first thought at this loud sound, this boom, is he has returned? That made an impression on me I've never forgotten. You know what? That should be true of every believer. Now, it takes me 30 minutes to wake up. I don't think I would think anything if I heard an explosion in, uh, at 2 in the morning. But here, that's what we're admonished to do. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given at the revelation when Christ is revealed. We live with a view on the end when Christ will return. And how are we to live holy lives? It goes on to say, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Obedient children. We come to God the Father. There's a theological term, a formal term called adoption. Adoption. And it's like what we think of. When we, it's, it's, very, it's probably one of the closest theological terms. When we think about adoption in this life, you're adopted into a family, you become a child with all the rights and privileges and so forth of that family. Now here's the formal definition of the theological term adoption. All those who are justified, in other words, were made right with God, God grants as a privilege to make them partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God and we have his name put upon us and we are to be pitied and protected and provided for and chastened by him as by a father yet never cast off but sealed to the day of redemption and we inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. When John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, we are adopted then into his family through faith in Christ. I heard an older man here years ago say that when he and his wife were raising their children, they made a conscious effort always to say to that son or daughter, You are an obedient daughter. You are an obedient son. You're a good son. You're a good daughter. Now, in their opinion, it was their opinion, that that instilled confidence in their kids. Were you told as a child that you were a good child? Were you told that you were a blessing to that family? My mother spent the last 10 days of her life here in Macon, and she died in a hospice facility back in 2006. I had a close relationship with my mother. I highly respected my mother. I learned to, to, about God and about Christ from my mother. And she had a 100% commitment to Christ. Um, yet the last time she spoke to me, I was getting ready, making sure, okay, you got everything you need, the room's all right, the door's open, there's a nurse right there, you know, everything, you need anything. I mean, you want any water? You want any, you know, I checked on all that. And she said, no, I'm fine. And she looked at me and she said, you're a good son. 
That's the last words I heard her say. She couldn't speak within a short period of time. You're a good son. Now, I'd never thought I wasn't a good son. I caused him a lot of grief and a lot of trouble, but that had been years ago and things had been resolved and so forth. But I don't recall her ever saying that until the end. Now, here's my point. There's this kind of thinking in America, well, if you really believe God loves you and accepts you and has adopted you and you don't have to do anything to keep that relationship going, you know, then you've just got to, if, if somebody teaches you you're secure in Christ and you've got assurance of salvation, then you're just going to go out there and live like the devil because <laughs> the fear will be gone. That security will bring uh, a hellacious lifestyle. Now, when my mother said, you're a good son, do you think I walked out of there and said, yes, finally, I can bring shame and dishonor on this family. I've been holding this in forever, but I know I'm secure now in her acceptance, and now I'm just going to let everything loose. Of course not. It's just the opposite. You want to bring honor. You want to respect that. So we are told here that we are adopted as children, and we're not to live as we used to in our former ignorance. Now I must move on. In verse, I ran out of time far too early at the first service. And um, then he says in verse 16, Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Our standard of holiness is God himself. Where do we look for standards of holiness? Do we look around at, at Christians around us? That, do we look, that can be disappointing. Uh, we are to look to God himself. But as we walk with Christ, as we're walking in his sons and daughters, as obedient children, we will reflect his holiness. It's not something we have to try and do. It will happen. A number of you have read books by D.A. Carson, Donald A. Carson. Uh, D.A. Carson has been a, uh, a teacher in a variety of institutions. He's a seminary professor. He's, he's been a pastor. He's... He's really con he's written numerous books. I know many of you have read. But I was reading where he, he grew up in Canada, and he attended college in Canada, and he went to college. When he got to college, he was a, a strong Christian, and he wanted to share his faith with others. So he and his roommate began an evangelistic Bible study in their dormitory at McGill University. And before they knew it, they had 16 guys from the dorm coming to their room and he said the room was packed and they were having discussions and people were asking questions that he just didn't he didn't know how to answer so he had gotten to know a graduate student named dave dave being a little bit over, older was a, a very committed christian and da said i knew that when these guys brought their questions i could always go to dave to try to get some answers so one day there were two students that da took to see dave and the first one, when Dave said, they went to his apartment, and Dave said, what can I, how can I help you? And the first guy said, I'm comparing religions. I'm kind of interested in what Christianity teaches. I'm also studying Buddhism and Hinduism and other worldviews, and I'm not sure if I really believe any of it, but I'm just kind of interested in learning about it. And uh, D.A. here said that he thought you might could help. And Dave looked at him and said, looked, stared at him for a moment and said, I'm sorry, I don't have time for this. And they looked kind of stunned. He said, what I mean is this. He said, I've got a heavy load as a graduate student. I, my schedule is full. You've got a cursory interest in Christianity. 
I'm dealing with people that are really serious about it. I'll be glad to tell you some books you can read. I'll introduce you to some people and that y'all might can carry on discussions. But I, I can't invest my time if you've just got a general interest in it. Well, D.A. Carson said he was sitting there stunned at the response. So he turned to the other guy. Dave turned to the other student and said, what can I help you with? He said, well, I'm fr- I grew up in a home that's not Christian at all. It's not religious at all. It's a very loving family. Uh, we're, we're obedient. Uh, but we don't have any religious views. And for the life of me, I can't figure out why y'all think Christians have anything different than anybody else. I can't figure it out. And he said, so I was interested in just trying to discover that. And Dave looked at him and said, watch me. And he said, I beg your pardon? He said, watch me. Come and live here with me in, in this apartment, if you like. Be my guest. Spend a month with me. Watch how I spend my time. Watch when I get up. Watch how I use my time. Watch how I value. Watch how I work. Watch how I talk to people. Watch what I do. And at the end of that month, you tell me whether you see a difference. Well, the fellow, whose name was Rick, did not take him up on the offer to move in there, but he began spending time with him. He became a Christian, married a Christian gal. They both became doctors and served the Lord in Canada and in other countries. Now, was that arrogant of this guy, Dave? When you first read it, you might think, who would say about, uh, I'm going to validate Christianity for you, watch me. I think Dave was right. That is, if you and I are pursuing holiness like's described here, based on a relationship with Christ, it will show up. It will show up because we are downstream of God's holiness. We're to be holy as he is holy. So God's holiness flows down and through us. We're not upstream of his holiness. We are downstream of his holiness. And so it will show up. Well, last of all, he tells about how we've been purchased with a price. We've been redeemed. If you've studied your Bible, you know that redemption means to be purchased. And so perhaps you see yourself as a seeker today, uh, not as a Christian, uh, not as someone who's come to faith in Christ, but you're trying to get some questions answered. And it's common for unbelievers to say, I could never live like that. I can never obey God. I have no interest in doing that. When you trust Christ, you're adopted into his family. And then, like any child, you begin to resemble your parents. Have you ever had anybody come up to you and say, you look just like your father. You sound like your father. You talk like your father. Or your mother, you look just like your mother. You know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, all that. I'm named Chip. You know where that comes from? Speak to me, some of y'all that know. Chip off the old block. I was in my 20s before I figured that out. (laughs) Seriously, I'm not making that up. Um, I walk like my father. I slump over like my dad. I, I, I do you think I think about that? <laughs> no, it just happened. It, it just happens. We become like our father as his adopted children. You may not, if you're from the Church of England, if you have an Anglican background, you may know the name Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer, in the 1500s, he was an archbishop in the Church of England. And he said this, we must first be made good before we can do good. We must first be made just before our works can please God. For when we are justified by faith in Christ, then come good works. Now, let me tell you who he was. He believed something that was, he came to believe something that was very dangerous in his day. And that is, he believed everyone should be able to read the Bible in their own language. 
And he preached the Reformed faith, that God was in control of all things. And that was fine for a while until Mary, Bloody Mary, became queen, Mary I. And persecution became very, very severe. Well, Hugh Latimer was thrown in prison along with his fellow archbishop, Archbishop Ridley. They were sentenced to be executed because they would not renounce those beliefs. And so they were burned at the stake in October of 1555. Which, by the way, if you study, this burning at the stake was not fast. It's probably about the most horrific way a person could die imaginable. And it was slow, and it was painful. As they were being burned at the stake, Latimer looked over at Ridley, and he said, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Today we shall light a flame in England that no one will be able to put out. Now, where did Hugh Latimer get that kind of courage in the face of death? Well, he was changed from the inside out. And now we know what Latimer meant with his quotation. I'm going to read it again to you now. We must first be made good before we can do good. We must first be made just before our works can please God. For when we are justified by faith in Christ, then come good works. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for justification through Christ and that we're adopted into your family and that now you give us a desire to follow you. We pray you'd help us to prepare our minds. Some of us here are being tossed to and fro because of what we're thinking about and dwelling on from day to day. We pray you'd help us even there to love you with what we put in and meditate on. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.